Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I am Andrew. For the first time, I'm recording from our Canadagua studio in New York, USA. And Andrew is now uh, in... Uh, I'm in Malaysia. Not by choice. Welcome to 2020, <laughs> where nothing makes sense. And yet we find ourselves in awkward situations where I am stranded in Malaysia for the last three months and probably foreseeable future. But at least we've got the ocean. So if the sound quality is a little different, guys, that's why. So forgive us. But it's been a while since we've done an episode, Andrew. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. From the very beginning, like we're talking like a year before we even started this podcast. So five years ago, I learned about this guy named Ely Parker. This guy's life is absolutely amazing. And I thought to myself, we have to do an episode on this guy when we get to it. And now that Caleb and I have, like many things, researched his life, we're like, I don't know if we can get this into one episode. But Ely Parker's life is just incredible. And despite his humble beginnings, he goes on to rise to the heights of power in Washington, D.C. Many people probably have never even heard him before, but we guarantee after you listen to this series that we have on him, you're going to have an amazing appreciation and learn a lot about United States history and hopefully Iroquois history and the life of Ely Parker. Now, Andrew, before this episode, we did a whole series on the War of 1812. And when the war finished up, things really started to change rapidly for the Native American peoples of the Northeast. For the first time in history, there was no Euro-American power needed to appease the Iroquois anymore, meaning that they didn't need to, you know, curry favor since they were no longer a threat to their frontier borders. The frontier was now quickly moving past the Mississippi River. And the reason for this is in the fall of 1825, the Erie Canal, also known as the Barge Canal, if you guys ever sang that song as kids, opened across all of upstate New York. And what it did was link the Hudson River and the port in New York City to the Great Lakes. And so now in theory, people could travel by water all the way from Manhattan to anywhere on the Great Lakes with no hindrances. And this leads to huge amounts of growth in Midwest cities like Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, and myriads of other smaller towns all along the coastlines of these massive bodies of water. And this just brought hundreds of thousands of people into traditional Haudenosaunee territory. We start seeing all these little towns in upstate New York pop up along the canal. Places like Fairport, Brockport, Lockport, you know, they've all got port in their name because they're just all these towns that have uh, sprung up overnight. And within 10 years, the Six Nations now find themselves living on these proverbial islands in a sea of whole new migrant, not just farms, but towns are all over the place. At the same time during this decade, everyone's favorite president, Andrew Jackson, this ushers in like a whole section of his, U.S. history called the Jacksonian era. And he was really into bank reforms and, you know, helping the little guy. But as for indigenous people on the eastern side of the continent, it was a disaster. He pushed hard for Indian removal of almost all tribes and nations to go west of the Mississippi River. He was throwing out legal action and executive decrees and pretty much strong-armed threats of force against them. In May of 1830, the House of Representatives passed this Indian Removal Act, very close vote, just like 101 to 97. People didn't take this sitting down. There were evangelical uh, American missionaries who worked 
hard to stop this removal. They lobbied politicians. They wrote essays in newspapers. They even got this case to go before the Supreme Court. And we all know, Caleb, that the Supreme Court is the highest law of the land and whatever they say goes, right? Yes. And luckily, Andrew, the Supreme Court did rule that the native peoples were protected under past treaties. So they ruled that uh, Andrew Jackson couldn't remove them. And after hearing about this, uh, Andrew Jackson replied, uh, this is an exact quote, now let them try and enforce it. And that's where that was left. The Supreme Court has no military. They have no powers. They're just a court. No one really challenged Jackson on it because everybody in the South was on board with it. And so most of these Southeastern Native peoples were forced to relocate to Oklahoma. Uh, the missionary Everett's that tried to tirelessly to make sure that they could stay, well, he died, got tuberculosis and passed away in 1831. And so a lot of these people waited until the last minute to move. Like they held out as long as they could until the army pretty much forced them to leave. And that's what's known as the Trail of Tears. Just thousands of people had to pack up in winter months and many of them died of disease and uh, hardships on the way. As for the Haudenosaunee nations up in the north, they had a lot of pressure to relocate as well. The, the Seneca Mingos of the Ohio country joined with the Cayuga people and they moved to Oklahoma. And they're still there to this day. But the issue is in Oklahoma, a lot of their land holdings that were to be dealt out were a huge mess because the U.S. government just gave out land and they didn't really pay attention if it overlapped with, I don't know, say, Cherokee and Shawnee land. They also didn't make sure that there was a balance of things like tillable land and access to water. So some nations wound up with land that was completely worthless that they couldn't even eke out a living on. And think of it more like there weren't even trees. I mean, there's not a lot of forests. It's just not what Northeastern woodland uh, indigenous people would be used to at all. Uh, the Oneida also in 1838 made a treaty with New York and with the United States and uh, their chief, Daniel Bread, negotiated that the entire Oneida nation in New York state would swap their land and move to Wisconsin. And they are also there to this day in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And if you look at a map, they actually control a large part of the city's land as part of their reservation. I would say up to maybe a quarter of it. And Green Bay is not that big a city. So in the midst of all this goings on, Illy is born, and he's given the name Hassanoanda, and uh, he was born in 1828 to a woman named Elizabeth Johnson, and she was a member of the Wolf Clan. His father's name was William Parker, and he was a miller and a Baptist minister. During the War of 1812, William Parker was the first Seneca warrior to enlist and fight for the United States. He ended up being injured in the Battle of Fort Niagara, and he received a government pension for his services. And that, I think, is pretty cool uh, that, that he was recognized as a, a revolutionary or a 18-war veteran and actually placed on the government uh, pension for the rest of his life. Billy came from a big family, Andrew, uh, seven children, just like us. They grew up on the Seneca Tonawanda Reservation in western New York, and he was later given the English name 
Illy Samuel. This was pretty common practice. Uh, he was basically named after a friend of the family. A lot of times what they would do is if they had a, a teacher or a pastor or some white person that was a friend of the family, a lot of times when they pick their, their English name, uh, they'd pick the same name as their friend. And that's kind of what happened. When he was young, his English wasn't very good. One day he was mocked by some soldiers that were in town and he took it to heart. And he made a little personal promise to himself that he would learn English so good that he would never be mocked again. Is that right? So good or would be so well? When he was a young teenager, he was called upon to help save his nation. In 1838, the Ogden Land Company was back. This is one of those companies we they've popped up all through their history. There's these land grant companies like Phelps and Gorham especially in the late 1700s with the the treaty with the Seneca. Uh, These land companies were buying preemptive rights to sell land. So this is another one of the same, another one of these land companies that's trying to get a hold of the Seneca land in order to section it off and make a few bucks. I think it's our Canadegua episode. Caleb explains exactly what preemption rights are. And uh, at least he tries to explain it. I'm not sure if we still understand it. Uh, but yeah, and that's why the Ogden company keeps popping back up because they have these preemption rights that still carry on for decades. So Ogden was the guy that went, uh, head to head with Red Jacket for years, trying to get his hands on the Seneca reservation. So, uh, you can listen to our Red Jacket episode, or I, I think they pop up in several. Red Jacket famously said that as long as he breathed, Ogden would never get his hands on any Seneca land. Ogden died in 1829 and Red Jacket in 1830, but the company lived on. And they began to use the Indian removal that was happening under the Jacksonian era to try to get their hands on Western New York land again. They launched a campaign of, you know, really honest stuff like bribery, liquor, gifts to... They tried giving them to the sachems, get them drunk, and get them to sign up the lands. They were able to do that with some of them. Uh, Some people say they were even able to do it with the majority of them. But what a lot of people forget is that according to the Iroquois Constitution, only a unanimous vote of all the chiefs at the council was legal. So even if 51% of them sign it, unless all of them do, it's not legally bound. And if I could interject here, a lot of them voted that way because Ogden bribed them, but they thought, hey, yeah, I'll vote for it because we get a bunch of stuff that we could really use. Even if one of us holds out, it's non-binding. So whatever, I hold up my end of the bargain and we still get to keep our land. So the Ogden Land Company then took their treaty to Congress, uh, which of course knew nothing of Iroquois law. They still don't. President Martin Van Buren told Congress that the treaty was probably fake, but Congress passed it anyway. The Seneca would be given $1.67 per acre, and the Seneca would be evicted immediately. Remember that total, $1.67, okay, Caleb? The Seneca were furious, and they prepared for battle. But this time, instead of guns, they were going to use the law. Problem was, they didn't really know much about the U.S. legal system. They were going to try and sue the United States, and so they began preparing their legal case. In 1844, Jimmy Johnson, he was a nephew of Red Jacket, he led a delegation to Albany to sue New York. And while they were there and trying to research all these obscure United States constitutional laws, they were looking up records of old treaties as proof of what their rights were. But Johnson really couldn't read English that well. In fact, 
None of the elders really could. So Johnson brought his 16-year-old grandson, Ely, along to read and interpret all the documents for them. Ely was by now bilingual, and he showed a really amazing intellect. This event would end up forever changing Ely's life, and in turn, it would wind up saving the Seneca Nation of New York. Not specifically based on anything they found in the Albany archives, but in a bookstore with a chance encounter. One day, Ely was in there, and he met a man named Henry Morgan, who was also, by chance, in Albany doing research on old United States Native American treaties. Morgan was absolutely fascinated by Iroquois culture and history. He and his friends had even formed like this secret club called the New Confederacy, and they blended a lot of Iroquois pageantry into these meetings. And today, uh, a lot of indigenous people would call this uh, like, really insensitive cultural appropriation. I kind of picture the OA. (laughs) This is exactly what I was picturing. I was like, and Caleb was a member of the OA. We don't have to put that (laughs) (laughs) No, you can put it in there. Uh, The Boy Scouts have an honor society called the Order of the Arrow. But I believe it's actually allowed by the Seneca Nation. I believe that they've approved certain things. Is that right? Or have well, they... as far as, as our lodge, uh, yes, we actually were in contact with the Seneca and they, they would uh, tell us what is accurate and what, you know, is made up. Because according to the traditions of the OA, it was, it was started by like the long carbine or, or Uncas or something from the last of the Mohican story. So it's, it's written by a white guy, just how he pictured it being so it's all just fantasy but i i wouldn't be surprised andrew if the the days <laughs> the days of the oa are numbered much like this club here but yes picture a bunch of white businessmen putting on their indian garb and having a big bonfire and dancing around it and that's kind of what was going on but to their defense they they really did genuinely have an interest in the native american culture they just didn't really know anybody to teach them how it actually went. So that's why he was so fascinated about meeting a real Indian. So Morgan was absolutely overjoyed to to meet the entire delegation. And he instantly started exchanging all kinds of knowledge with them. And he really took a liking to young Ely. He and predominantly him, but some of his other friends offered to pay for his and his sister's and another one of their friends' education in a private school. So his parents and he talked about it and agreed. And Ely thought that it would be really good for him to get a good education to not only help himself, but maybe this would in turn be able to help his nation. And so he enrolled in Cayuga Academy in Western New York. The school was, as you can imagine, not easy for him, For however. Uh, We've got a quote from one of his letters when he wrote home. Once or twice, I've been severely abused, but I return blow for blow with savage ferocity. Whether I gain the upper hand of my antagonist, I leave the public to decide. For mind you, these quarrels were public. Bad business, but it could not be helped. <laughs> Despite the bullying, Ely did excel at learning. He studied Latin, Greek, the sciences. He was an amazing debater, like most Haudenosaunee people are. He became the academy's leading orator. He became more versed in English. He became the translator and record keeper for the Seneca Sachems in their ongoing legal dealings with the United States government. He went to Cayuga Academy for three years and after graduating, 
Parker traveled to Washington, D.C. to lobby for rights of the Senecas to remain at the Tonawanda Reservation. One time in D.C., he again wrote in his diary, Oh, how do I long for my native woods? This place has no charms for me. The choicest wisdom of this great American republic gathers here around the great national council fire. But what care I for that? It is from this place that decrees have emanated, dooming my kin to the grave. They have become extinct without even leaving a monument to remind the antiquarian that they once existed, a happy race of beings. They are soon to be lost to the memory of man. So around this time, Ely, he's still a teenager, mind you, I think maybe around 16 or 17 or 18, he gets a personal meeting with President Polk and goes to him to lobby to save the Seneca land. He told the president, we prefer to progress as we do now towards the custom of whites rather than go into the wilderness again. And what he meant by that was we're taking up farming. Uh, we've got people learning English. We'd like to stay in our homeland. You know, we're not these random barbarians that people are making us out to be. Yeah, one of the arguments for the Jacksonian era was the cultures were just too different. So we need to just have all the Indians on the other side of the Mississippi and all the whites here. And so what they're literally saying is we would rather learn to farm than be removed from our homes. We, you know, taking up the customs of the whites. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, all the cultural aspects, but as far as the business day-to-day lives, they're starting to recognize, hey, we can't do our, our big hunts anymore because we don't have the land to do it. So we can either go do our big hunts in some mystery country, or we can take up the way of the whites as far as agriculture. So that's what they're referring to. But a petition came to Washington, D.C., and it was signed by 35 upstate New Yorkers. And I I found this quote, and I really liked it. And the petition said to the United States government, The Tonawandas are a moral, industrious, honest people, rapidly improving in their condition, possessing good farms. The people of the state of New York do not desire their removal and have no sympathy for their spoilers. So a lot of people tend to focus on on the bad, but uh, there there were quite a few people that personally knew the Seneca in those areas, and they wanted them to stay and, and live together. Upon returning home, Ely found that the Seneca land was already being worked by white settlers and the Ogden Company. Uh, the Ogden Company was actually rounding up Seneca and removing them by force. Ely quoted that when he met people from the Ogden Land Company, some of them were carrying four pistols apiece. So even though he'd just gotten back from Washington, he quickly returned again to talk to President Polk. He says, quote, We have ever felt a strong friendship for the people of the U.S. We love its Republican institutions. We have shed our blood in common with the good citizens of the U.S. in defense of her rights. And all we desire and ask is that our love of peace and the great friendship that we have for the U.S. may not suffer by the misconduct of individuals of unprincipled white men. But in the spirit of that treaty which holds us as almost sacred, we desire to establish a firmer friendship which shall ever remain unbroken. Ely was later told by the superintendent of Indian Affairs that nothing could be done. While he was gearing up to leave Washington, he met some visiting chiefs from the Comanches and the Cherokees. They showed up covered in paint and looked really, really wild. And he said that if he had Indians like this in New York, 
I could whip the whole Ogden company right out. <laughs> so if you're a Comanche or a Cherokee, Ely approved. <laughs> he thought they were pretty bad looking dudes. The Seneca delegation met with many Washington leaders, but despite their best efforts after five months of waiting around in Washington, the Senate committee decided to table. This was a huge disappointment. Ely looked on the bright side. Tabling the motion is better than it being dismissed because now it's still up in the air, so it can still go either way. It's better than ruling against them. Parker was now 18, and he moved to a new town to study law as an apprentice. He quickly learned, and after three years, he applied for a license with the New York State Bar. Wow, good for him. Yeah, went to college, now just went to law school. He was denied. Now, you may ask yourself, how could you be denied? He's obviously educated as long as he passes the bar. He wasn't even allowed to take the bar exam. The New York State Supreme Court said that only a natural-born American could practice law. And that is just such a funny thing because a natural born American who's nat more natural born than a Seneca man. <laughs> so being a Seneca, he was not a U.S. citizen and therefore barred from taking the exam. The long short of it. How do you not develop bitterness for that all those years? Finding so now all of a sudden, he's just spent all these years in school and he needs to find a new opportunity. He thought becoming a lawyer would be perfect for him and also perfect for helping the Seneca because he could familiarize himself with all the laws. Part of me wonders if, if it was a direct reason why they barred him from it because they're like, we don't want a Seneca person becoming a lawyer and all of a sudden making huge legal headaches for everyone. So he, he ended up uh, visiting his friend Henry Morgan, the man that we mentioned that uh, does the OA ceremonies and uh, is interested in Seneca history and ended up paying for him and his sisters, or not him directly, but him and his associates at their club paid for Ellie's education. So Morgan and his friends again offered to pay for his education in a different aspect. Ely accepted. So Ely was heading to the Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, where he graduated as a civil engineer. This is one of the premier schools for civic engineering at the time, because a lot of these teachers and people are people that have built these massive canal systems and things like that. So it was a very good school. Morgan and his friends decided to go on a huge public awareness campaign, and they financed this themselves. They held large meetings, had people canvas all over upstate New York, signed petitions. They lobbied their congressmen in Washington. In 1846, Morgan himself went to Congress on behalf of the Seneca, and he gave them a, a compromise offer. He said that he wanted the Seneca to be allowed to buy back their land, and they would pay $20 an acre. And this previous treaty that the U.S. government approved uh, with all the, the bribery would be discarded. Caleb, do you remember the number I told you to remember what the Seneca were paid for their land the first time? I do remember. It was $1.67, I believe. How is $1.67 more or less than $20? <laughs> Significantly less. That is a lot of money. But the Seneca were pleased. So pleased with Morgan's work that he was adopted into the Hawk clan as the son of Jimmy Johnson in the end of October 1847, and they gave him the name Tayada Awauka. I'm sorry, I know I'm butchering that. Forgive me, our Seneca friends. But it means bridging the gap. In 1851, Morgan published 
League of the Iroquois. Now, Andrew, was this one of the first books that you ever acquired? I know it was one of mine. It actually wasn't. It took me a while to get this book. I had borrowed it from the library, but my friend Philip, he lives in Virginia, and he said, I mailed a package. I found this book at a yard sale and I wanted to give it to you. And this thing is like history in itself, because this is one of the first academic works on ethnology. Morgan is known as the father of modern anthropology, just studying an entire culture, everything about it, and, and putting it in a, in a scientifically documented fashion. He's the first guy to really do this. And we didn't get into it too much, but while he's writing this book, Ely is there basically the whole time, answering questions, getting him interviews with elders, finding their old traditions and having him write it down showing them their ancient artifacts and things like that. So when the book was published, if, if any of you have a copy and you open it up, you'll see right there on the first page that it is dedicated to his friend, Ely Parker. And another interesting thing, Andrew, that you may not have known, but on the cover of it, there is an Indian in Seneca Garb. And that is Nick Parker, Ely's brother, who posed for the photo. And inside the book also is a picture of uh, Ely's sister, who also posed for a photo for the cover and a picture inside the book. Is all of it accurate and correct? No. Uh, a lot of it's dated. You know, it uses old terminology. But in addition to being just an incredible piece of science, it opened people's eyes up to what the Haudenosaunee culture is. It became a huge public awareness campaign in itself that people started seeing, hey, this is a culture that, that isn't backwards. It's just different. And it has a long and glorious history. And it's very complex. Ely got his engineering degree. Where better to go work than on the Erie Canal? And despite the fact that he had an engineering degree, Andrew, he had to start on the bottom. And I mean really on the bottom. His starting position was axeman. So here you are. He went to law school. He went to, to engineering school, and he started as an axeman on the canal. But within a year, he had been promoted four times. Axeman, and then he was promoted to a rodman, then leveler, then transitman. And eventually, he was appointed second assistant engineer. And he worked on the upgrades and maintained the Erie Canal along with other projects. And this was actually a really big project because although the Erie Canal was built at first, it was really narrow. Like there was just barely enough room. It, it was called Clinton's Ditch at the time. It was extremely narrow. And so throughout the 19th century, they did projects to expand and make it wider so that larger and larger boats could travel up and down it. It was a lot of... Uh, maneuvering to do that kind of work almost as much as building it in the first place. And you got to remember, for those of you that have never seen it, it's a lock system canal that's hundreds of miles long. There's a lot of mechanical engineering that goes into it well, maintaining and building these locks, which are basically giant mechanical drawbridges that let the water come in and then close and then let a boat through and then close. In September 1851, there was a, an even more prestigious promotion that Parker received, but not uh, in the business standpoint, but in the social service standpoint, because he became appointed as a sachem of the Seneca. 
you want to give them a quick run through, Andrew, for those that are just listening on what the difference from like a sachem and just, you know, the term chief doesn't really describe it. You want to just. Yeah, because chief is, well, it's a Norman French word that made its way into English and I won't give you the whole back etymology, but a sachem is not a chief. You think of a chief as one guy that's in charge, like a king of a, of a town or a village. But a sachem is, I think the closest way we could interpret it into English would be senator or a congressman. It's, it's someone that sits on a council for the entire confederacy, or at the same time, if they're meeting locally, just for your individual nation. And they're the ones that vote on treaties and different things that affect the entire community. They're beholden to the clan mothers. And if you want something advocated, you go and talk to the sachem personally, and he'll bring it up in the council. And unless you're removed, it's a position for life. 1851, he was 24 years old. And he just received a life appointment as a representative for the Seneca. Kind of a big deal. Uh, he was given a new name because all the way back, I think, in our second episode, that uh, the names are hereditary. So it's like a title. When someone dies on the council, you're given a new name, and it's one of the 50 that are already on there. And so he was given the name Donahogawa. Again, I apologize to our Seneca brothers. But it means open door. He was now entitled to a seat on the Grand Council representing the Seneca Wolf Clan. He was also given the cherished Red Jacket Medal. He was told to wear it as a reminder of the peace between the Whites and the Iroquois. Now, if you remember our Red Jacket episode way back in the Revolutionary War, at the end of it, George Washington personally gave Red Jacket a commemorative medal that showed the two of them shaking hands in peace. So now Ely is going to have this medal. At some point after this, a Seneca leader sold this cherished medal that he was given to a museum in Albany. Must have been especially hard up. Upon learning this, Parker tracked the medal down and purchased it for himself. And he would guard this as one of his most cherished possessions for the rest of his life. He would have it with him from here on after. He was keeping a sharp eye on it. Have you seen the medal, Caleb? Yes, I saw it. I saw it back when it was at the Ontario County Museum, but I believe it's at Ganondagon now, isn't it? I'm not sure if it's there. Uh, I saw it, same thing, at the Ontario County History Museum. It was donated, I know it was donated to the New York Museum after his death, and then it was given back to the Senate. It's, it's bounced all over the place over the years. The cool thing is that it's still available for everyone to see and enjoy, whether it be your Seneca or, or white or American. <laughs> I hate using Seneca and white as... You know, it's tricky because in in what we're reading, it's Seneca and white. But I don't like referring to Americans as white because we're not white. We're a mixture of thousands of different cultures and peoples. So after becoming a sachem, Parker received more good news. The New York State Canal Board had just promoted him to first assistant engineer. I don't know if that's he's the assistant to the engineer or if he's literally the assistant engineer. I believe he is the assistant engineer. So it's it's probably like the number two position in that area of the canal. Ely continued working hard for the Iroquois while he was working for the whites on the canal. In the meantime, he became a mason. He joined the Knights Templar. He was a member of the Mechanics Guild and some historical societies. And then he became a captain in the New York State Militia. And this is really funny to me because I'm thinking, okay, so New York State, you won't let him take the bar exam, but you're going to give him a, 
a captaincy in the New York State Militia. Ely became known as an excellent engineer. He went on to work in North Carolina, and then he helped build lighthouses on the Great Lakes before being named superintendent of a customs house and marine hospital in Gilna, Illinois. And this custom house is still there to this day. I thought Galena would be fun until he got there, Andrew. You know, this, this was a far western town at the time, and uh, he said this about it. It was a dark and benighted part of the globe with no society or amusement unless it was drinking whiskey and plunging one's fists into somebody else's mug. Now, by mug, is that slang for, like, face or, like... Yes. Okay. I... Yes. He's saying there's nothing to do in this town but drink and fight. That's literally what he's saying. Being an engineer, he quickly became annoyed by government bureaucracy slowing him down at every turn. Another problem he ran into was where to get stone. There was no quarry in the area, so he got creative. A few years earlier, a Mormon temple had been burned. Now think about the time period we are. You know, this is right around the time that the Oregon Trail is about to get started and all the massive migrations, especially the Mormons, are going to be moving west. So uh, this Mormon temple had just been burned most likely by an anti-Mormon mob, I'm just assuming there, but it was uh, later abandoned. And Parker, walking by it, noticed that this Mormon temple had beautiful white limestone. And he said, but I don't have a quarry. Where did they get this? So doing some detective work, he was able to find out where they got the stone, and then he got the stone from the same source to build these buildings. And this is a really cool part of the story. Parker was amused at how out of place this random man working in the grocery store looked. And that man's name was Ulysses S. Grant. He noted how Grant would make himself scarce every time there was a customer entering the store and let one of the lackeys handle doing the business, and he'd retreat to the back room. Parker would stop in every time he was in town, and their acquaintanceship slowly turned into a friendship. Parker wrote that, once the ice was broken, I found him to have a warm and sympathetic nature. At one point in their friendship, Parker saw a gang of men getting ready to attack some poor schlub in the streets. After a closer examination, he realized the schlub in the streets was Grant, and Parker came to his assistance and fought back to back, and the two of them were able to fight off the gang. While in Galena, some people tried to have Parker removed. Can't think why. He seems pretty qualified, but uh, probably for something non-racial, I'm sure. We can speculate uh, it was probably racism. But by now, he had friends in high places, and his work spoke for itself. He was a skilled engineer, a good orator, and a good human being. And he also seemed pretty tough. In October 1857, he received a telegram. You got to remember, he's hundreds of miles from his Seneca homeland. It was the people of the Longhouse asking him to return to help. While he was gone, it appeared that the government was giving the Ogden Company the go-ahead to start selling off the Seneca Reservation in Tonawanda. Meanwhile, the Seneca legal case, like most legal cases today, continued to drag on in the court system. And this is all the way up to 1857, when the Supreme Court of the U.S. ruled that only the federal government could evict the Seneca from their lands and that the Treaty of Canandaigua and others were valid. The stipulation, of course, was the Seneca needed to buy back the land that had already been sold, which, if you remember, was $20 an acre. Well, where are they going to get the money to buy it back? Because they don't have it. 
they, they got paid a dollar 67 years ago. Where are they going to get $20 an acre? But due to some people such as Henry, uh, John Henry Martindale and Lewis Morgan, they were able to raise over $250,000 and buy back about two thirds of the reservation from the Ogden company. So that's what did them in. The Ogden company was getting ready to foreclose and they said, no, 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 you can't have it. Sorry. And that was it. The Ogden company had no more prospects after this and they promptly went into bankruptcy. The Seneca Nation was saved. Yay. Due in main part to Parker and Morgan's tireless work. Although they had lost much of their land, Parker always uh, counted saving the reservation as one of his greatest achievements. They had lost about a third of it, Andrew, but the fact that they were able to still keep the majority of it was a huge success, and nobody begrudged him in the Senate community for them losing a piece of it. They were just so happy that due to his hard work and the work of these other friends of his, they were able to save the reservation. Parker then spent the next several years completing those buildings that we talked about, the the post office, the hospital, the customs house, and he was moving a lot. In fact, Andrew, in one month in 1860, he traveled over 2,000 miles. In 1861, Parker was done with his buildings. A very nice uh, thank you note came in the mail for all the work he'd done, and he was discharged. And he really wasn't sure what to do next. So what do you do when you're not sure what to do? You, You go and talk to your friends. So he went to his friend Ulysses S. Grant. He asked him uh, what he was going to do because rumor had it that war was starting up between the North and the South. So Parker asked him what he's going to do. And Grant said, uh, well, I went to West Point and the government paid for my education. So if the country needs me, I will go. And by the end of the year in 1861, war came to America. So that's where we're going to leave it for today, everyone. We want to remind everybody to like us on Facebook. Uh, leave us a positive review on iTunes. And Andrew, I've got some big news. Well, it'll be big news for our listeners that are somewhat close by. And that's that I found another box of wild sweet potato clan mugs in the basement. You did? I did. I must have put them down there and forgot about it. But I am done mailing these things out. (laughs) When uh, When we said that uh, we'll give a claim mug. Everybody leaves us a review. I mailed like 300 of these things out. All for free, mind you. You guys can thank me later. I spent thousands of dollars <laughs> sending these things out and spending so much time. So I'm not going to mail all these out. But if you would like to swing by and say hi and you are in Western New York, I would be happy to give you one. So if, if you are in Canandaigua or anywhere around here and you want one and you've left us a review, Uh, shoot us a message on our Facebook page and I would be happy to meet up and give you one. You can still like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Iroquois History and Legends, or send us an email. And uh, it's been a little harder to answer them as quickly as we have. I just got another message this week, Caleb, uh, from a guy up in uh, the St. Regis area, uh, Mohawk land up in uh, way upstate New York, uh, you know, that straddles the Canadian New York border there. And, uh, he said he just loved our show and appreciated uh, everything that we're doing. And we, we don't come off as two white know-it-alls. So that was very nice. Well, we appreciate that. You know, honestly, uh, it's, it's always hard doing history and mixing culture, especially when you're not directly involved in the culture. 
So we, you know, oddly enough, Andrew, it's pretty cool that uh, every single person in the indigenous community has been nothing but supportive and friendly and helpful to us. It really has been wonderfully amazing. I was expecting, when we started this over four years ago, I was expecting, oh boy, are we going to screw this up and get so much blowback? But I really, I really do get messages every week from different people of the Six Nations and from other indigenous nations. And it's, it really is uh, amazing. And, and we thank you guys so much for your support. And uh, we just feel so privileged and honored to, to get to learn and share in this together. Bye, everybody.